This is Robert Capuccio. Welcome to the Self-Help Antidote, a weekly dose of reason, perspective, and insight, where we challenge conventional thinking and explore authentic strategies and insights around personal transformation. Our commitment to you is to bring you some of the world's leading experts in the domains of fitness, wellness, coaching, and behavior change, separating fact from fallacy. Thanks again for being here. Before we get started, just a little bit of a disclaimer. This is going to be a slight bit of a rant because I came across something by Robert Sapolsky. I'm a big fan of Robert Sapolsky. For those of you who don't know, he's a neuroendocrinologist and a professor of neurology and neurological sciences at Stanford University. And he basically says regarding human behavior that, quote, it's complicated and you better be real careful real cautious before you conclude you know what causes a behavior, especially if it's a behavior you're judging harshly. And when I read that, I think not only about the behaviors of others that we tend to judge harshly, but the behaviors within ourselves that we tend to judge harshly. And here's one of the foremost experts in the world around human behavior, and this is his perspective. Now, when you take a look at what is an expert, is an expert someone who simply has more information? I mean, there are a lot of well-informed people that don't necessarily have a deeper level of expertise. And I think what identifies an expert is distinctions, that they're able to recognize and utilize information to employ that information and and those things that they're able to see that most people can't towards solving a problem, yielding an advantage, creating something truly innovative. And here's one of the foremost experts in the world. And what you see here is that expertise has a side effect. And, And sometimes it's a frustrating one. And that's, things aren't, this way versus that way. They're not right versus wrong, black versus white. And when you're dealing with someone who doesn't have a lot of expertise, they seem to have a lot of opinions, strong opinions, and very simple conclusions around why people, you, do what you do. When you deal with someone who has been studying human behavior, who truly is a world-renowned recognized expert, you get it's complicated. And that can be frustrating. But the fact is that people aren't a singular reflection of themselves at their best or their worst. In most cases, we're always a deep and dynamic dimension. Years ago, I was on the train with a couple of colleagues of mine, and we were traveling back to London. We had just done a conference at Loughborough University. And back then, we did that conference at Loughborough every year. It was one of my favorite conferences, to be fair. It was extremely enjoyable. It was rewarding. I loved the audiences. But it was also because we were going full on days at a time. It was exhausting. So I was completely spent on the train. And sitting to the right of me is one of my best friends in the world. And he introduces me to someone who I hadn't met who's right across from me. And then he says, well, this person, so-and-so, I'm not going to mention their name, obviously, you know, he has a question for you about you know, someone in his family. And would you talk to him a bit? So I was like, okay. You know, he's a friend of a friend. Now, remember, I'm completely spent. I've got nothing left. 
it's like I was sitting there like I forgot to pay my brain bill last month. So that's kind of like the state I was in. And then my friend continues with, oh, you're not going to like anything he has to say. And he's not going to agree with anything you have to say. And you're probably going to like get into an argument. Mm, Well, thanks. (laughs) That's exactly what I'm in the mood for right now. So I said, well, what's going on? Talk to me. And his response was, what do you do when you have someone who's lazy and they say they want change, but all they really want to do is complain? How do you deal with a person like that? And I said, well, at least we're starting off the conversation without any presuppositions or assumptions about this individual. And Every time I tried to ask for context, it turned out it was his cousin. His cousin had been struggling with being quite overweight for a while. And because this guy is in the fitness industry, he was just asking him, you know, like, what can you do? What's your advice? And a lot of times when people ask for advice, they're not truly asking for advice. We all know that, right? These are the people who ask us for our opinion, but don't accept what we have to say. These are the assholes. Well, they're not actually. Because what they're really doing is asking us if we would be a soundboard so they could talk out their own thoughts and try to work it out in their own mind. Because when people do something, especially long term, they do it as a result of, amongst other things, autonomy. They do it for their own intrinsic drives and reasons. So when I started asking around context, like, was he always overweight? You know, if not, what what triggered that? When did that start? He just kept cutting me off. Like, no, it's not about that. That this is That's all, like, excuses. What this guy really needs is a kick in the ass. Now, what I was confused about is, if you know the answer to a question, before you even ask it, why even bother engaging in a conversation or asking the question in the first place? Um, second, <laughs> you already know that the answer is the answer that you're on the right side of. So his perspective was, I know the reason why my cousin struggles because he doesn't have, and and the conversation kept going back to him. Like when I want to do something, I'm disciplined. I make no excuses. Even when I don't feel like it. Okay, we know you're awesome. And I don't want to discount for a second the value of grit and discipline and willpower and that these things have extraordinary benefits in our lives, especially when you take a look at the long-term perspective, like how do small acts of discipline and willpower when compounded across not weeks, but months and years and decades, what does that have on our life? I don't discount that, but what I do want to present is just the possibility that there are a lot of variables to human behavior that make the reasons why people demonstrate or sometimes not demonstrate these attributes so consistently and frequently in their life. It it might be, as Robert Sapolsky said, complicated. So here's a couple of examples about human behavior, just in case someone is doing this to you or you're doing this to yourself, where you're punishing yourself or judging your own behavior patterns harshly. And that judgment is not moving you forward. As a matter of fact, it's keeping you more helpless and more stuck. Or worse, if you're a coach 
and you have these simplified, superficial, resolute assumptions about people do this or they fail to do this because they're this type of person, well, here's just a couple of perspectives. In her book, The Deepest Well, Dr. Nadine Burke Harris shines light on the work of Vincent Felitti and Robert Anda in what's become known as the ACE study. Now, the ACE study stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And there was one story in the book that resonated with me, and it was heartbreaking. And it helped me clarify a little bit why I have such a disdain for what I consider to be presumptuous, violent communication disguised as motivation. And it was the story of Patty. Now, Patty was a patient that Felitti was working with. She had gone from 408 pounds to an astonishing 132. That is incredible. So amazing job. Now, in order to do that, she had to demonstrate, I think you would agree, a wide range of personal attributes. However, there was something about Patty, like many others that were similar to her that Felitti was working with. And this really confused him. Listen to this and tell me if you yourself won't be confused. See, you would expect that people who were struggling with their weight loss would be the ones to quit whatever program they're on. But that's not what was happening. It was Patty and people like her who put in the hardest work. Like the hardest work was already behind them. They they, they were just at the finish line. And these people were the ones that were dropping out. And that made no sense to Felitti. The people who should have been celebrating their successes were quitting. So finally, he gets to have a conversation with Patty. And he discovered that the activating event, the triggering event that caused Patty to start putting back on weight was an incident that she had with an elderly patient at the hospital. So the patient was repeatedly mentioning how good Patty looked since she lost all of her weight, and he was actually hitting on her. Later in that conversation, Felie discovered that when Patty was a child, she suffered rape and incest at the hands of her grandfather. And that's when her struggle with obesity began because Patty started to put on weight as a protective measure to save her from devastating sexual abuse. And once she started to put on a certain amount of weight, the abuse stopped. Her grandfather lost interest. So in her mind, she linked up, not that she wanted to be overweight, but that being overweight, obese in fact, was the only way to protect her from something far more painful and far more devastating. So we look at people and we see them as being overweight. Well, that's the problem. Well, for Patty, being overweight wasn't her problem. It was the desperate solution. And the more Felitti started to investigate, the more he started to discover. And to his astonishment, Patty was far from alone. In fact, her situation was more common than he ever could have imagined. You know, life is short. This ends soon. (laughs) Just, you know, not to throw in a, a positive pep talk into the mix, but we know this. We're all perfectly imperfect, yet we're not broken. And not being broken connotates that we don't need to be fixed. You know, people around us have faced trials that if we knew their story, 
we would be appalled and astonished. And a lot of times we'd be in a position where we couldn't possibly understand. You know, I went through very similar and highly violent situations to Patty when I was a kid. And I understand the complexity of very oftentimes subconscious responses that I didn't understand. And I'm still figuring out decades later. So what I'm saying is, you know, whether it comes to our own behaviors and when it comes to other people's behaviors, let's be more of an investigator, more of an advocate and a little bit less of a prosecutor. So here's another variable to think about when it comes to why do we behave the way we do or why do we behave the way we and maybe other people think we should behave but don't. So back in 1849, there was a curious case of a railroad foreman who, despite being a favorite amongst his employees, had to be let go from his current position because of his profane, aggressive, and drunken behavior. Yeah, this guy was a lot of fun in HR meetings. Now, because of his position and his notoriety, his employers were understandably reluctant to make this decision. Yet no amount of intercession on their part could curb what they deemed his quote-unquote animalistic appetites. You know, most of us would say, okay, fair enough. The decision to fire him seemed more than justified given the individual's penchant for bad behavior. You can't have somebody, you know, in a company culture with animalistic appetites. Um, Okay, I was about to make a joke there, but nah, anyway, skipping over that. So... Let's rewind. A year earlier, his employers, as did all of his employees and his peers, regarded him amongst the most likable and the most capable foreman in the entire company. He was smart. He was of good character. He was personable. He was fair. And I guess most notably, he could be relied upon. So what accounted for this complete lapse of virtue and a series of what could only be defined, supposedly, as bad choices? Well, it all starts one day when he was on the job using an iron tampening rod to pack explosive powder into a hole. I know, what could possibly go wrong? And this accidentally detonated an explosion, sending the rod which was a little bit over an inch in diameter, through his left cheek, tearing through his brain, and exiting the top of his skull before it landed 80 feet away from him. Right? That's that's nearly like 30 meters. So immediately after the accident, Phineas Gage, that was his name, he was able to walk and talk. And later that night, he was still able to recall the names of his co-workers, and he assumed that, well, he'd be back to work in a day or two. <laughs> wow, talk about grit, Right? But then he fell into a semi-comatose state for about two weeks. And once he awoke, he immediately began to recover physically and intellectually. Yet, something about Gage was not quite right. And he was never the same. The rod had severely injured portions of his prefrontal cortex, making emotional regulation and reasonable decision-making nearly impossible for him. Now, okay, not everybody suffered the structural damage that Gage did. 
Yet many times, like, we favor things like sheer grit, willpower, work ethic, a good attitude, but we ignore that there are other factors, like Robert Sapolsky said, making it quote-unquote complicated. And these factors very often have at least equal effect on our decisions and our behaviors. And we could probably create a list 50 items long here, and I'm sure some people have, about how to increase willpower. And, and a lot of it deals with character strengths. Well, you know, you just got to work for it or you just got to decide. And, and I'm not saying that that's inaccurate, but what I'm saying is what's actionable around that? Now, I was listening to a podcast by a friend of mine, Paul Taylor, the other day, and he was talking about someone who duplicated the Walter Michelle study. So the Walter Michelle study decades ago is when they brought in these kids and they put a marshmallow in front of them and they said, you know, we're going to leave the room for a couple of minutes and you can eat that marshmallow, but if you wait until I get back, you can have two marshmallows. Wow, double the reward. And most of the kids were completely incapable of doing that. Like some of the kids just ate the marshmallow the second the researcher walked out of the room. Other kids tried really hard. They you know, sat on their hands. They tried to distract themselves. They looked away from the marshmallow. They couldn't even look at it. Some people picked it up and just sniffed the marshmallow, licked it a little bit. And then they finally succumbed to eating the marshmallow. And then, you know, there were other kids and these are four and five-year-olds. So this kind of points to the fact that willpower, there are some factors that are innate to our bio-individuality, if you like. And that's something that, you know, it's a totally different story, but we don't recognize it. Now, obviously the kids who had the greatest self-regulation when studied decades later, had done better in almost every factor of life that you could objectively measure. And when this study was duplicated, what Paul Taylor was pointing out is that every kid who succeeded to one degree or another had some form of strategy. The kids that did the worst were the ones that employed no strategy. So, you know, what do you do when people admonish you to be different and they point out general characteristics rather than specific strategies. So what I'm going to do is, is just for the sake of brevity, I'm going to give you five tools that might help you. If you're struggling rather than you're lazy or you're broken or, or any connotation that has to be at some level void of context and reality, here's some things that might help. First of all, know your strengths. You know, we, we've all had things that we had to do where we found ourselves knuckling down and pushing ourselves to do it. And we also have activities that even though other people find them difficult and not particularly motivating, we excel in these areas and often we find ourselves pulled towards them because they compel us, right? So what are your strengths and how do you utilize your strengths when you're sitting down to do something that you need to do? You know, another one is hack your environment. Environment has cues that trigger behavior. People say, well, no, they don't. You generate, you know, your own context. Okay, well, if you've ever been to a rock concert, you might notice that you behave quite differently than when you're in a library, we hope. Or, you know, if you, if you walk into your house 
and the first thing there is the TV and the sofa, you might notice that you might sit down on the sofa, turn on the TV. Or if you're trying to cut back on drinking, it's kind of difficult when you're in a bar versus a coffee shop. So environmental cues absolutely do matter. Many of the behaviors that we have are conditioned responses to those cues. So create a time and space to remove yourself from the triggers that conflict with your desired actions. So when you walk into the house after a long day of work, or if you're home all day, because, well, you know, that's where we are right now, put other triggers. Like, like if you could put away the TV, put it away. Or if you can put, let's say, a yoga mat down in front of the TV to watch a yoga video, that trigger has a different response than just looking at the sofa. You know, getting rid of food in the house that usually triggers, like, like let's just call it less than conscious behavior, that's a great strategy. I mean, me and my wife, we're always like, oh, you know, let's, let's not drink wine at home this week. The second somebody goes out, and I'm not saying who, not pointing fingers here, and buys a bottle of wine, that becomes a much harder commitment to keep than, you know what, let's buy some tea. And not only buy some tea, what we'll do is we put teacups and a box of tea out on the counter. That becomes an environmental trigger. It provokes a completely different behavior. So what are the triggers that get you tripped up that stop you from doing things that you really intend to do? And what could be triggers that facilitate that action. Next, smart goals. I mean, sometimes what we mistake for a lack of discipline might be a lack of clarity. Or, or in some cases, it might be overwhelm. Are the goals that you're setting, are they specific? Do you know exactly in no uncertain terms what it is? Like, do you have a goal to make more money next year? <laughs> That's good luck. That's not very clear versus, you know, I'm going to increase my income by 10000 that's more specific. Well, next is measurable. What are the measurable steps? Is it attainable? So in other words, you know, if your income decreased the last two years, you know, what made you choose 10,000? Um, and how confident are you that you're able to achieve it? You know, if it's less than an eight, well, what would 5,000 look like? And is it relevant to your values and long-term outcomes? So a lot of times we're doing things that we think we should do, but we don't really intrinsically value it. Somebody else values it. Somebody else wants it for us. So we think in order to please them and be a quote unquote, you know, right type of person, we got to take this action, but it doesn't match what our internal drivers really, where they would push us. So because of the incongruency, we wage a battle against ourselves, And that's a battle that we're going to lose by attrition. And finally, is it time bound? Meaning, does it have a due date? You know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to start eating healthier. By when? What meals in the day? You know, how, like, what, what is the level of frequency? And by what date are you going to achieve a goal? And the mistake people make, I think, sometimes is trying to do too much in one small unit of time. When you go smaller, it's measurable, it's adaptable, and it builds the psychological momentum, confidence, as well as brain chemistry to support the goal of achieving consecutive goals after that. So let's take a look at food, for example. Before 
each meal, let's say. I'll, I'll use this as an example. You can ask on a scale from 1 to 10, 10 being the greatest, how much will this food choice most support the things I have to do for the rest of the day? It's, it's more than likely that if you're looking at something that's sugary and processed, it's not going to give you the optimal energy, focus, vitality, and mental acuity that you need to perform at your best. And I've tried this with groups of people that I've worked with, large groups of people, and it's worked spectacularly well. And the reason why I think it works spectacularly well is because they were in high-stress jobs that were very demanding. These were not lazy people, to say the least. But they would go out and they would make bad food choices because they were in a series of meetings that depleted their blood sugar and discipline, the currency of discipline, is glucose. That's what your dorsolateral prefrontal cortex utilizes for self-regulation. And they were in all these meetings. They were in a high-stress environment. They had already done a ton of work. These people got into the office at 7 o'clock in the morning. And now it's lunchtime. And they're going out there. And what does their brain really want? Something that's probably not in their best interest long-term. But they're on autopilot. So they're like, okay, today I'm going to go to location A and I'm going to have, you know, a little bit of fish with salad, you know, mostly a plant-based meal. Then they get into the mall and they're like, okay, give me sugar. And, And a lot of times just putting a question between stimulus and response upregulates your prefrontal lobes just enough to actually consider the decision you're making. And just by asking this question, what's the most important thing I have to do in the afternoon? And is my food choice right now? Not making any clear determination, just yes or no. Is the choice I'm about to make right now putting me in a position where I can perform well in my highest priority task that I have before the end of the day? And we found that that really worked. And you know, lastly, reframe discipline. So... Not to be redundant, but there are so many variables that reduce discipline down to a character trait. If you set out to do something and you don't, give yourself a percentage of success for whatever you did accomplish and ask, what is it that you could do specifically to perform better next time? Labeling yourself or or worse, allowing other people or influencers to label you as someone who lacks discipline or whatever character trait you think isn't constructive, that does not give you tools and resources and insights to move you forward. What's worse, it could often reinforce the exact thought patterns and emotions that keep you stuck. So anyway, I hope this was helpful. Just a couple of simple tools around what you can do to get yourself to take action if you're finding yourself stuck, and a couple of reasons and examples as to why human behavior is rarely as simple as people make it sound. And whatever determinations people make about you or you're making about yourself, I'm not saying they're wrong. But what I'm saying is consider what else might be possible because, as Robert Sapolsky said, it's complicated. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Visit us on Instagram, drop me a DM, give me your thoughts, your insights, and any subject matter you'd like us to explore in the future.